Hello and welcome to the 1740 podcast. I'm Alexander Ward, chairman of the De Vere Society, and I have with me, as usual here, Maudie Lowe. Hello. And we're going to be talking today to a very interesting and very unusual character who's had a lot of experiences that none of the rest of us have. And his name is Richard Clifford, and he's an actor and he's a director. He's had a long experience with theatre and theatre people, and he's an Oxfordian. So welcome to the 1740 uh, podcast, Richard Clifford. Thank you, Alexander. Yes, absolutely. I am sticking my uh, colours to the mast as an Oxfordian. Well, it's lovely to have you on the show. And uh, tell us, uh, for those for those who uh, maybe haven't come across your name before, tell us a little bit about your um, about your background and your experiences that I alluded to just then. Absolutely. Well, I was, um, in fact, born in India, in Assam. My father was a tea planter. And uh, I cannot say that there was much uh, theatre apart from uh, the occasional nativity play in India. Uh, we watched lots of movies. Uh, and I came to England when I was six and a half because of the Indochina War. And that's when I got to school and I found the most wonderful libraries in every school I went to. And I loved delving into books. And where, where, where were you at school? I was at a school called Seafield in um, Bexhill on Sea, Suffolk. And then I went from there to a place called Canford, which is in Dorset. Were you a, were you bought, you a boarder? I was a boarder, yes. My parents still lived in India. Yeah. So America, I don't know if Americans understand our concept of boarding and not boarding in public school and private school, but a, but a boarder essentially means someone who actually lives in the school during the term time and only sees his parents um, at, at in the holidays. Did that make um, did that make your relationship but, but with your parents? Mostly, bit... you were allowed uh, two weekends a term where you could go away, and you were allowed uh, three half day exiats. They were called exiats. So weekend exit and a half day exit and the half day exit could be on the Saturday afternoon uh, or Sunday afternoon. But you had to play sport and you had to go to church. So you couldn't do morning. Did you did you end up taking all the lead roles in the school plays? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I did actually take uh, a number of lead roles in the school plays. But my father, who recognized my unacademic uh, principles uh, rather banned me in my final two years, my A-level years, from being in the theatre, doing any theatre work. And I had the most wonderful English master, who was also the drama master, and he actually put me into plays, but he did not put my name in the programme. <laughs> so there was no evidence that I was doing plays, but... Uh, I did continue to do them, and I did possibly subsequently fail all my exams. However, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I was a late developer, I expect. No, I really, I was not interested. I'm hopeless at maths. I was not, I loved language. Uh, I loved English, but um, I was not that academic. Uh, what, was, what was one of the roles you played at school? Oh, I played various things from... Uh, Bassanio uh, in Merchant of Venice and in Othello, I played... I have to interrupt while you're scratching your head to remember your school yes. day roles. 
and say something that I know you won't say because you're not a blower of your own trumpet too much. But uh, Richard is the most brilliant actor, absolutely brilliant. And and I remember you um, you're reading just a few lines of R- Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and I mean it was literally just just two or three lines, and and they just came alive. They it was so much expression in your eyes and in your voice the whole thing went together and it was it was completely magical i was absolutely transfixed by that and so richard reads richard's on the on the board of the devere society he's a trustee of the devere society but even before that he used to come and we have conferences and read bits of shakespeare and um polonius and bits of lord burley and so that's how I've come to know Richard over the years. And uh, he always does that with such uh, amazing hypnotic brilliance that it totally changes the, it really changes the whole conference because we have people standing up talking about the Earl of Oxford and uh, being quite academical. And then Richard with Derek Jacobi and uh, Annabelle Leventon, some other actors come on and read parts of Shakespeare. And it it it's the most exciting thing uh you've done you did that fact quite recently didn't you richard can you can you remember even what you read then <laughs> it was only a few weeks ago wasn't yes it? i can uh, thank you alexander for that uh, uh, so kind uh, philip for me uh the perfect face of radio then obviously i yes we did an event at the charterhouse to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the first folio of shakespeare the most wonderful day i have to say I really enjoyed it, and not only did I participate in it, uh, but also helped to organise it, and I really thought that it was one of the most amazing events, certainly of my time, about a literary subject that I've, that, um, I've been to. But he's not just literary, he's uh, obviously uh, a playwright, etc. And uh, the words are there to be spoken, and we did speak much of from Shakespeare, the, from the a selection from the 18 plays uh, that had not been published prior to the first folio. So that was interesting in itself. Who would have thought that The Tempest wasn't published until the first folio? Nobody. Who would have thought that the Ophra Muse of Fire chorus speech in Henry V had not either been published in the uh, quarto, but it had not, possibly not had been heard um, as was explained to me, uh, it was put in there so people would be told how to imagine the vasty fields of France and the battles and what went on. So for all that, it was fascinating, but it did concentrate on the first folio. And we read, uh, I think, rather amusing bits from Hemings and Condell, who were the supposedly uh, proposed by certain people who've written about the first folio and quite recently who's had another book, well, actually the same book re- republished uh, to fit with the 400th anniversary, who said that they were the possessors of Shakespeare's plays, etc., and the ones that hadn't been seen, and a most extraordinary uh, excuse for not actually going deeper into, uh, into the subject. So... Um, it was lovely for us actually to portray uh, characters from Henry VI, from uh, all sorts of and various uh, various parts in the Shakespeare canon, from the plays that hadn't been heard or seen before. Richard, when did you first begin to doubt the author of the works of Shakespeare? 
That possibly was about 15 years ago. I, I can't I can't say I had a Damascene conversion because, of course, I had been brought up and uh, still do think that the play is the thing. Uh, but I'd been brought up actually not questioning, uh, not even thinking about the man from Stratford who they said wrote the plays. It was just Shakespeare, Stratford, plays. Uh, and in fact, when you, as a performer, when you perform them, and uh, particularly as a performer, but also in some way as a director, you look at the words. The words are, are absolutely the thing. Now, from, from my point of view, uh, I my construct was that they are plays about social interaction. They're not just political plays and they're not just warmongering plays, but they're a, they're a plays about what people call, and I know it's, a, it's an enormous phrase, at least I think it's an enormous phrase, the human condition, what we, the way we behave towards each other, the way we behave as countries towards each other, that is what interests me most. So in fact, when I have uh, worked on uh, in the theatre and on film, I very much am interested in the human condition. I'm not really interested in the battles, nor politically too interested in the political situations of the plays. However, as a director, of course, you do look into those. And I think that the um, now that we I, I have moved on from not really thinking about who it was, I now think that who who wrote the plays of Shakespeare is very important because you get the context. And I think context is so important in the plays. They will, of course, work as, as we have seen them work in many different situations. You know, they're, they're done as musicals, they're done as, um, oh, puppetry, they're, you know, people change the, uh, the characters, sex, sex uh, the race, everything. They can be done in so many ways. But as I look at them, I look at them and think about them in their, their social condition. And I think the more that I am learning about this social condition, the more interesting the plays become. To yes. know that they were played in front of Elizabeth I is absolutely fascinating and done privately. Why would uh, a general audience, of people like me, in Elizabethan times, if I wasn't an actor, if I was a man in the street, why would I even understand them? I certainly wouldn't understand the political uh, situation. So they had to have been done very carefully for people who understood them. And uh, yes, and, and one feels also that there's a lot of rather delicate or indelicate lampooning going on. Um, I mean, if you take uh, Twelfth Night and Malvolio, who seems to be pointing at Hatton, and you say, you say, well, it, it, it's exciting to think that these were being watched by Queen Elizabeth and her court, but yes, and sitting next to Elizabeth was possibly Hatton, who was um, being laughed at in the character of Malvolio, and Queen Elizabeth would have known perfectly well what was going on, and they would have all been roaring with laughter, and one can only imagine how Hatton was taking it. Um, and Polonius, of course, who's Burley. And, and it, it, it starts getting very meta when you realise that you've got these plays that are about English history, but then he seems to be implanting into them characters who are sitting in the audience at the time. Of course, that happens in Hamlet, doesn't it? Yes, it is um, play within the play within the play. It's very interesting. 
um, you know, the, the, the social situation outside the play, the play itself, the writing of the play, and then the character of Hamlet, who could be defined as every man, but also in our opinion, I say our opinion, uh, the people who, who, who believe that uh, the Earl of Oxford wrote the plays, in our opinion, Hamlet was uh, a self-portrait. And uh, Hamlet's doubts and everything were part of his own life. And then you get Hamlet looking at a play about his mother and stepfather and his father and his father and stepbrother fa uh, brother were uh, were brothers uh, and you just think this is so convoluted and so complicated that it is easy on one level to understand it of course it is but on the other level you just think my god what was going on when elizabeth and uh, burley and all these grandees around her were watching the play thinking is that me is he writing about me and to well, yes and and he's using the play to to prick their consciences and that's what he actually says in hamlet that he's that he's doing yeah um he's not even hiding it he's using the play to elevate not just the people in the country well that's to say educated people but also the courtiers and and thereby to lift the whole country, the whole spirit of the country, its morale, its intelligence, its use of English language. It, it, it's a almost a didactic exercise, but done with such artistry that you you know a child can watch it and still get some enjoyment out of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one one point I'd like to make about that is, of course, that nobody could write like that in front of somebody like the Queen of England and get away with it unless they were very close to them. Because it is like, like looking into a mirror. They were all asked to look into this mirror. Uh, as we know, we can quote Shakespeare and we can quote everything, practically every word we ever say is, seems to have been in there. But also the man who uh, wrote a play, The Richard II, which was done, the Essex Rebellion and what was going to happen. Nobody was punished for the play being performed. Why not? You just think it had to have been somebody very close to the throne. And, and it had to be someone who... Fascinating. Yes, absolutely. But it had to be someone who is, in a sense, in the position of the court jester, the, 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 the fool. Mm. It's someone who, who doesn't have necessarily a lot to lose and who's got the bravery and tenacity to stand up in front of the queen and to laugh at the courtiers and can get away with it. And and I and I think when you look at Shakespeare and the the focus that goes on 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 the fool's parts, and how close they seem to be to the Earl of Oxford, mm. um, who was who was, he was a brave man, and and I don't think he was frightened of anybody, and he had nothing to lose, and he had a great wit and a, and a sense of his own superiority, certainly in terms of art, and there he was in the center of the court. He didn't like the court very much. Didn't, he didn't like being there very much. But there he was in the centre and able to, to look down and up and sideways at everyone around him. And that, I think, contributes to the great, the great genius. Yeah. Um, has your Oxfordian standing affected your career at all? That's an... I don't know. In a sense, one doesn't know because um, I'm sure if people, you know, are casting a play and... There's a director who's a Stratfordian. They might go, mm, I don't want him. 
he's worked for the other side, you know. Um, but I, I am getting on. I am getting older. And I honestly, now I don't care. I think it's more important now for the word to get out that there is a change. The changes are coming. Well uh, said, Richard. Well said. And, and, I, and I, I think also it's becoming cool. It's actually becoming quite a cool and intelligent thing to be an Oxfordian, where 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there was this still sneering. And, you know, I, I felt it, certainly. And more, more recently, uh, it's becoming a sign of high intelligence. And actually, you know, half of the intelligence of, of New York are now Oxfordian. The young are picking up on it. Yeah, you know, I think that I think that oh Shakespeare, Shakespeare, boring Shakespeare. Oh, there's a new there's a new angle to it now. It might have not been the man from Stratford. It might be someone else. That's interesting. I wonder who that is. You know, it all encourages interest in 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 the person who wrote the plays. And I absolutely, think we, we when you think that uh, 15 years ago, uh, Stanley Wells was vile about uh, two people that I know, uh, Derek Jacobi and Mark Rylands, about their stance as as, as doubters uh, of the man from Stratford. And nowadays, we, we just laugh at him. We do. Are you ever able to approach the subject with any of your acting friends? I do. I think because of my enthusiasm, uh, and I think in the, in the uh, starting and, and going through with the Charterhouse uh, event, of course, I people would come to dinner or I'd go to see them or whatever. And in a social situation, they say, oh, what, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I've got this great event coming up and it's all about this and it's all about the first polio and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, yes, I do. Some of them, I am wary about mentioning it, but most of them are absolutely open and go, well, that's fine. That's what you think. There's no, there's, so there's no problem there. A couple that I really, I wouldn't need to go into that uh, with. But if they know that I am an Oxfordian, then that says it all, really. Yes, well, I, I, I don't want to create wars and battles and problems where there needn't be any, but I think rather ill of Stratfordianists. And when I was about a bit younger, my children were very young, I used to go around the house if I got irritated, I would say he's, he's, he's a ruddy Stratfordianist. Didn't, didn't mean he was a Stratfordianist, of course. Just anyone who irritated me, you know, someone in the car coming the opposite direction yeah. and not backing in the lane properly. And I'd say he's a Stratfordianist. And my son didn't know what that meant. And he went to school and started calling people Stratfordianists, just meaning ghastly person. You know? <laughs> and then he said that he was going down the corridor uh, sometime later and he had this rather aggressive boy attacking another boy, saying, you're just a Stratfordianist. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's a cuss word, isn't it? A cuss word. Generalist <laughs> cuss word, yeah. Exactly. Um, so anyway, so you've done this um, both acting and directing. Mm. And one of the things I want to ask you about the when you're directing, I know that you speak, because I've heard you doing it, Shakespeare absolutely beautifully with a total understanding of the of the meter and all that. I find that a lot of modern Shakespearean actors are not very good. Uh, they don't seem to understand how the meter works and they shout when you don't need to shout and they turn their backs to the queen and do all sorts of weird things. Are you finding that that modern Shakespeare productions are at a bit of low ebb in England at the moment or is that just my imagination? Well, at risk of never getting a job doing a Shakespeare play again. Um, 
I, I do, I do think uh, it's strange because I love Shakespeare. I love every single word of it, even that which I don't understand, because I can find a way to understand it. And certainly as an actor, I can find a way, I have to understand it, but I can find a way of presenting the speech or whatever, so that people will understand it, even though they don't understand each word. But I have found now that I see plays, uh, Shakespeare plays, that seem to have other points of view, that seem to have, um, they, they've chosen something that used not to be very relevant, but now is. Uh, because for me, the words are the thing. Actually, the writers, are, for me, are the gods and actors are the interpreters. We are, that's what we do. So we need to interpret uh, what we're saying. Nowadays, the priorities seem to be different and they don't therefore speak the words correctly. I don't mean, I'm not talking about with an accent or the right accent or whatever, nothing to do with that. It's actually making sense of what you're saying. And uh, I think some of the loudness sometimes happens because people don't know what they're saying. And so they shout. And everybody goes, oh, that was emotional, wasn't it? But they haven't got what it's about. And really what's about is quite easy to understand. If you produce the sentence in a way that shows that you understand it. As a director directing Shakespeare, for example, Hamlet, knowing how much this reflects Edward de Vere's life, would this influence the way you directed the play? Well... I think yes. Now, you know, the more you understand something, the more you're able to uh, give signals as how to express it. For example, um, Polonius was Polonius when I first started out. But now knowing that he might be burly and he might be also as we understand, well, we know that Burley was Oxford's uh, father-in-law. All those things do make sense with Polonius. So if there is a line in the play, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but if there is a line in the play that refers to Polonius, that Hamlet is saying, for Polonius and Hamlet to look at each other and then react gives another dimension to the text because the audience will see these two people reacting to each other and think, oh, something going on there, which doesn't happen if you don't understand their relationship. Yes. It, it ain't I just agree. a failure and uh, what a curious, curious way Ophelia and Hamlet's relationship, it, it goes through, you know, you just have to think, why? Why were these two in this way, brought up together in the palace, practically brother and sister, cousins, certainly, you know, what is it? And once you know the relationship between Polonius and Hamlet, Ophelia and Hamlet, Burley and, you know, all these things actually yes. tie together. And, and and I think Claudius uh, Hamlet dynamic is a very very interesting one too because, uh, as as you know Richard that um, the Oxford uh, 
Oxford's father died when he was 12, and people think that possibly he was bumped off uh, by Dudley, who became Earl of Leicester. Mm. Uh, Dudley was staying in the house only just before, and Dudley enormously benefited from the death of Oxford's father. Uh, he was an executor of the will and rather wanted Oxford to treat him as his father. And you remember in, in Hamlet, when uh, Hamlet's sobbing about the, the death of his father, the murder of his father, and Claudius says, oh, you just it's very un unmanly to, to, to blub about the death of your father. You can treat me as your father if you wish. Uh, that stifling relationship uh, seems to be also uh, reflected in Hamlet. And it was very close to Oxford, of course, because Oxford became, as soon as his father died, he became a ward of court of the Queen. Mm. So the Queen effectively became, not exactly, but sort of a sort of quasi-mother to him. Mm. And, of course, who was moving in on the Queen, like no, no man's business, was Leicester, the, uh, Dudley. Yeah. Uh, so that dynamic unquestionably existed for Oxford that he goes and puts into that play. Mm. And my God, it gets tense when you, when you realise quite how personal a lot of the stuff in Hamlet was. Absolutely. And when Claudius is praying and Hamlet's behind him thinking, shall I kill him? Shall I not? You know, that's a very, very powerful moment. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Now knowing, you know, knowing more about the relationship between all these people in the court and in real life and in the plays, that you understand the tension more. And if Claudius is Dudley, you understand why Hamlet didn't like him. Yeah. I mean, I mean even if he's not Dudley, strictly speaking, but if, if, if Claudius, I mean... We can still look at it as though Oxford, if he wrote that play, which I'm absolutely determined and sure that he did, that his experience of Dudley and whatever would have in infiltrated into it, even if he's not sitting down there and consciously saying, I'm going to make Claudius a spitting image of my uh, of Dudley. Yeah. It, yeah, It's part of his experience, and it's so close to that. I mean, I think even the Stratfordianists would admit, and I think they did admit, long before Oxford even came along, they kept saying that Hamlet has to be a very autobiographical play. Well, what did they mean? Because for Stratford Shaxper, we don't have any biography to, to tie to that story. But they felt in their bones that there was something highly autobiographical going on here, extremely personal. And but once the curious you... thing about that, Alexander, is that the Stratfordianists did not pursue that line of thought, that line of observation, that line of study. They just dismissed it. Well, they couldn't. They couldn't pursue yeah, it. They could, no, but what I mean is they didn't <laughs> go further. Yeah. They didn't look into it. They just said, well, this is, he has to have done. He has to, it has to have been autobiographical. And yeah. that was it. How? How? Now, Richard, can I just go back to your um, acting career as well? Mm -hmm. What What's your most favourite, the most favourite role you've ever played? I think I have to say that each role becomes a favourite because of, the way you commit yourself to something. You are an actor, but you do all sorts of different roles. What I can say is, um, what do I look back at with most affection? And I think that's a better way of saying it, because I mean, I never played Hamlet. Um, I'd love to have played it, but I never played it. Uh, so I can't say, oh, well, Hamlet was because of this, that, the other. But my favourite times have been the times when I have been part of a, a company, I say, but also part of a group of people who love what they do. 
And my first, it, in fact, it was uh, an experience on film, which is when we did Kenneth Branagh's version of Much Ado About Nothing on film. The whole experience was so enjoyable that there was no moment in the eight, nine, 10 weeks that we were there that I didn't just love. That for me was the epitome of a good job. Char uh, the characters I played, uh, many and various, not just Shakespeare, but, um, you know, I love, I played Boyette in the film of Love's Labour's Lost. Uh, and I love doing that. Different experience altogether. It was turned into a musical, different experience altogether. Um, I love playing Horatia because it was with my friend Kenneth Branagh, who I so respect and so admire. And it was also directed by Derek Jacobi, who equally so, you know. Uh, so these sorts of experiences, it's it's the experience rather than the role for me. And do you have any funny stories or, or your worst acting experience? <laughs> oh, well, one actually connected to uh, uh, being in uh, three plays, three Shakespeare plays. We did Much Do About Nothing, directed by Judy Dench. As You Like It, directed by uh, Geraldine McEwen and Hamlet, directed by Derek Jacobi. And in Much Do About Nothing, um, Ken played Benedict and I played Don Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. I played Don Pedro, and in the in in Benedict's gulling scene, was essentially we had this bare stage. Uh, it was sort of glowing and it was sunbaked uh, looking. And the gulling scene for Benedict was a, just a chair, a collapsible chair on stage, and that was it. And he was facing out uh, uh, into the audience. And there was Claudio, um, Leonardo, and myself, uh, Don Pedro on stage. And we got to a moment, and I think it was in Brighton, and it was a matinee, and I tried. I couldn't think of the next line. I just couldn't think of the next line. So Ken was sitting there. The three of us were behind him. I looked uh, to Leonardo. Nothing. <laughs> Claudio. Nothing. And I could see the back of, you know, the sort of shoulders going up with Ken, nothing. And I thought, what do I do? I really, I have no idea what to do. So Nightmare. I literally went behind Ken sitting in the chair and I just sunk down behind Ken. So I disappeared behind the chair. <laughs> and uh, it was embarrassing, but it was actually uh, lovely because the audience knew what was happening and they knew and they laughed their heads off. Oh, that's a good ending to an awful, awful tense story, I have to say. I have to, I have dreams. I've never acted. I mean, I did a tiny bit at school and couldn't really bear it. I find it very difficult saying other people's lines. I, I can only say what I'm thinking instantaneously. Yeah. But I have nightmares. I have nightmares, even as an adult, that I'm on the stage as an actor, and, and I've forgotten my lines. I mean, you must, as an, a real actor, you must have that nightmare quite often. <laughs> it happens all the time. You know, when you're starting a new job or or even when you're not working, suddenly you will be panicked. I've been asked to do a play and I've learned the lines of another play. 
and I don't know the lines of the play we're doing. And then somebody sends you off and says, come back, come back, come back, come back on with the right lines. And you still can't do it. So you do, I mean, I God knows, I'm sure I kick the dog off the bed when I'm doing that. <laughs> how, how does an actor learn lines? It's just simply by reading and rereading, or do you have to have another friend to read them out to, or do you put them into a tape recorder? What's the technique for doing that? All, all, all sorts of things, Alexander. Um, I used to be able to learn them just by reading them and absorbing them. Uh, uh, not a quick learner, quite a slow learner, but that's how I did it. And then I've done it on tape and I do my lines with the other lines and then I do just the other lines and I respond. Um, and I also sometimes use uh, an actor or a friend to to do it with me because sometimes you have to learn things so quickly that you need, in a way, you need support. I mean, I know lovely Judy Dench has, she just would assimilate it by reading it. Uh, and I never had that skill. Uh, but I think that's partly because I was such a terrible academic at school. Yes. You know, in, in the Elizabethan age, when the vast majority of actors couldn't even read, uh, the writers... Uh, well, you you see this in Hamlet, don't you? The the writers t say it to them, yeah. so that so that they know how to say it and how to scan it and how to do it, and they have to repeat it back over and over. That comes in Hamlet, doesn't he? He says, "Repeat it as I said it to you." He gets very frustrated with the actors not doing it properly. Well, I think that was, <laughs> I think that I'm sure that was an internal joke. Don't you yeah, think? yeah, well, it must have been. Um, yeah. As so much of it is, as, so much, as you, you mentioned earlier about uh, Malvolio, you just know that there's something in there that is so connected to the court, is so connected to this figure who is uh, outside everything else, uh, 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 Olivia, falling for, you just know that it had falling for the girl who is pretended to be a man and she thinks it's a boy and et cetera. You just know that it has to, they must have been roaring with laughter at the recognition of what was going on. Absolutely. Or, or, or recoiling in horror. Sometimes. Or recoiling in horror <laughs> because, because people were laughing at them, you know, about uh, 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 the member of the audience who was being described on stage. I mean, I'd like to think that Lester lived long enough to see Hamlet. It's a bit touch and go. I think he died just after the Armada, didn't he? And and of course, the, the, the Stratfordianist scholars put Hamlet far too late, but we know there was a Hamlet that existed at least as early as 1589. But just yeah. imagine Lester, if he actually had bumped off uh, Oxford's father, the 16th Earl of Oxford, having to sit through Hamlet... <laughs> Yeah, it must have been agony for absolutely, him. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> or maybe he pretended to be deaf for those moments. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes. But you, I mean, look, in my library here, in our library here, uh, uh, we've got uh, Dating Shakespeare's Plays by Kevin Gilberry, you know, which is not what the Stratfordianists uh, list as their, their dating of the plays. It's well, all... that, that book, it's a very good book. It's a very interesting book because I think what he does, the editor, Kevin Gilberry, does it very fairly. And he says, this is what the Stratfordianists say and this is the evidence they're using to say it. This is what the Oxfordians say and this is what their evidence is. So you get both sides of both sides of the coin. And the conclusion of that book is that 
there is no play that could be dated precisely to any year or, or actually anything like. I mean, even the Stratfordians admit that, although they try and say that um, Henry V can be dated to 1599. Uh, but they're absolutely wrong about that. And this brilliant, brilliant scholar has come out saying, well, actually, uh, the, the very line that they think relates to Essex coming back from Ireland is wrong. Uh, and actually, it's uh, another man who came back from Ireland in the in the 80s. So, um it, it it the whole question of dating is a, is a very very interesting one i'm glad you've got that book and it's a, a book i would recommend to anyone who's listening to this who's interested because we often hear don't we richard people saying to oxfordians oh well o oxford couldn't possibly have written it because a lot of the plays are written after 1604 when he died well obviously we're not that stupid and we wouldn't be oxfordians if that were the case and uh the the, the, the you say that there's Stratfordians don't look at this book, The Dating Shakespeare Plays. It is the only full-length book on the subject of dating Shakespeare's plays, so they jolly well should be looking at it. But there you go. They they put their blinkers on and, and run in the opposite direction when they know they're being tripped up a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Richard, are there any other books that you'd recommend? Oh, I can. I mean, I, I came into this uh, later in my life uh, some people are lucky enough now to be starting in the business and going, oh my goodness, look at this, how wonderful Oxford, possibly Oxford, you know, it might be someone else. I can, I'm just actually, I wrote a list of the, play, the, the, the books that I was thinking about. And I think the first book that clearly made my mind up was Diana Price's Shakespeare's Unorthodox Biography. And the reason was, it was simple, it was it was an easy read, but it explained quite clearly who did what and how they were able to do it. So it explained schools, it explained universities, it explained works, it explained uh, references, it explained uh, uh, tributes, all that. And I thought it was a fascinating book. It's quite dry, yes. It doesn't zoom you into a story, but by God, I think it's what—it's absolutely one of the best. Yes, and but she, she doesn't. Write. She doesn't say who she thinks do, did write it, but she uh, clearly makes it clear, very clear, that uh, William Shakespeare of Stratford must be ruled out. Well, that's what made me finally decide. Um, I think the Laney book, which I only read maybe two years ago. I think it's a good book. Um, this is Shakespeare Identified, published yeah. in uh, 1922. That's, that was the first full-length, book-length uh, thing saying that the Earl of Oxford wrote Shakespeare. But it's, it's a very interesting book, and you read it uh, realising that this is this theory is being exploded into a world that has been living maybe for the century and a half, previous century and a half, just going, oh, it's the man, man from Stratford because it was so beautiful. Another one, uh, which I think really is interesting, which is Shakespeare beyond doubt, question mark, as opposed to Shakespeare beyond doubt uh, by Paul Edmondson. I think that's fascinating because it debunks a lot of the bits and pieces that come the way of the orthodox people. Another little a little thing that I read because I thought, why, you know, American writer, what do they think? And it's a small, it's a slim volume, but it's called Shakespeare is Dead by Mark Twain. And I thought, gosh, 
you are spending time musing about something that cannot be of huge interest to the general population of America, then much rather read your own books. And you're talking about the fact that Shakespeare, the man from Stratford, couldn't have written the plays. I think that's I think that's absolutely fascinating, and it 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 is in se- in a sense a sort of snapshot. Very witty and very funny that book. But Mark yeah. Twain is such a funny writer. Yeah, and I think it's in that book, is it not, that he has the memorable line saying that the the traditional Shakespearean biography is a brontosaur of nine bones and six hundred barrels of plaster of Paris. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. And did you know that the um I can't remember which university some. It, not Harvard, but one of the distinguished American university presses is bringing out a complete works of Mark Twain, scholarly edition in heaven knows how many, 40 volumes, and they're leaving that one out. You're joking. Yeah, it's an absolute scandal. Well, I think we should go there with copies of it and slip it into the 40... Into the 40 <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Or, or, or you know, buy this, get this free. <laughs> yeah, that, that's such a good joke we, we really must do that anyone who buys the set gets a free one of the missing volumes. i think so because if we see it there we can get I, I, we could have printed a few a few of uh mark twain's shakespeare's dead and just slip them in brilliant richard i think we should start a campaign now and start it going with the devere society yeah free copy i think that uh, those books really are good and i and, and i want to blow uh elizabeth winkler's whistle for a moment because i think she's written a very readable book about it's entitled uh shakespeare was a woman or other heresies and it's a journey through various theories about the person who could have written the plays she comes to no conclusion but uh it is witty it's interesting it's knowledgeable she writes with great fairness. And I do think for people who are going to be looking into this question, it's a great way to start because you understand that, you know, there's no particular way and she is just looking for different ways. My view, of course, is that the Alexander War chapter is the uh, correct way to look, but then I am biased. So am I. Richard I wanted to ask you um, and perhaps Alexander could say a little bit more about this Um, Edward de Vere's Bible you and Derek went to see it is that right oh we did we had we were we were at the Folger I've worked at the Folger a number of times and they have been incredibly kind generous uh, and uh understanding uh, about my my views but they also have oxford's geneva bible and they brought it up for the vaults one day and they let us look through it for a number of hours i mean it was the hairs on the back of your neck and i just i can't believe that i am now looking at something that he looked at but also something that he annotated so, of course, I was looking, I was trying to work out what this meant and what that meant and everything else meant, and I couldn't really understand it. But then I was only beginning to know, because this was about 10, 12 years ago, I think it must have been, 
Um, I've been going to the, the Folger for 20 years, 23 years, so 22 years. So um, it was then. And of course, they showed me, they took me into the vaults and they showed me all their first folios, which were beyond exciting. Although you do think, why can one institution have so many copies? It doesn't seem fair. Yes. It doesn't <laughs> seem fair. No, I agree with you. And we should we should say about the um about that Bible that you looked at. I've never seen it. I'm rather jealous of you for mm-hmm. having seen it. That uh, Roger Stripmatter wrote his uh, PhD thesis on that Bible, and showed how many hundreds of Veer's underlinings and marginalia. Uh, are passages that reappear in different ways in Shakespeare, and it was quite a a breakthrough thesis when 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 he wrote it. And I think one of the first doctorate theses, if not the the first, to take an Oxfordian line uh, from an American university. So it's become a, a, a very contentious but a very important document that Bible. And what fun it must have been to handle it. My my, my memory from just seeing photographs of it is it doesn't it have a um a sort of metal plate of the ball of the veres the veer um mm. stamped on the outside of the of, or, or somehow on inlaid into into the yes we do. i mean is, is that the original cover we don't know because of course they... yes yeah no it has to be because it because nobody be. else would have put would have put the bore on it okay yeah. okay yeah. do we know where that came from the bible I, I don't know where it came from when the folger got hold of it but i i have heard that folger was Henry Clay Folger was beginning to get very interested in Oxford as a possibility. And, and it's a great shame that the, the Folger subsequently closed down on that. Um, and they have people like James Shapiro on their, on their board mm. and uh, whatever she's called, Gail Kern pastor. Uh, I, I stayed with in the house of, in California of one of the trustees of the Folger mm. uh, called Lauren Rothschild. And I said to him, wouldn't it be rather nice thing if I came to the folder and gave a little speech, not not to make to set the whole place on fire and get everybody angry and furious and ratty, but uh, simply to just to sort of be friendly and, and say that there are these other ways of thinking. Mm. And he said, yes, jolly good idea. And he went back to the boardroom table. And of course, James Shapiro and and Gail Kern Pastor all stamped their little feet and said, under no question are we having Alexander War anywhere near anywhere near this building, <laughs> which is slightly pathetic. But that's we're still on the fringes of that world now. Well, it is, but you know, Gail was very nice to me. So I, I but then I'm, I'm, I don't have your knowledge, of course, Alexander. But she, you, you know, she did mellow. Very sadly, her uh, husband died, a lovely man, and died very suddenly. And I think it, it uh, sort of knocked the wind out of her. But uh, I have nothing good to say about James Shapiro. No, he's he's less good, isn't he? Well, on that on that very happy note, Richard, can I, can I thank you enormously uh, for your kindness in joining us today? Oh, it's been a pleasure, Richard. It's been an enormous pleasure talking to you. I wish we could go on and on and on. Uh, maybe you'll come back um, and uh, be a guest on on the seventeen forty podcast uh, another time because I'm sure oh, there's definitely. plenty more we could talk about. Yeah. And uh, anyone who's listening to this, who enjoyed it, who likes the idea of these podcasts, please subscribe to them. And we are uh, available on lots of different media now. And uh, we won't be telling you who our next guest is, will we, Maudie, necessarily? It'll yeah, be a surprise. It's a surprise, yes. Uh, but thank you, Richard. It's been a thank great it's pleasure. A pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank and I must plug your uh, YouTube channel, Alexander. Plug away. 
I think people should be should be listening to this and watching your YouTube films because they are absolutely fascinating about the subject and around it. So thank you very thank you. much. Well, if they do watch those, uh, they might know, they might suddenly understand why this podcast is called 1740. Enough said. Absolutely. <laughs> Bye, Richard. Have a nice weekend. Bye. Bye. Bye, Morning.